0: Welcome to another episode of the Capital Spotlight Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Beardsley. Today, I have Joe Kunzen with me from New York Mortgage Trust. Welcome. Thank you. Good deal. So uh, give the listeners a little bit of background about yourself as well as uh, New York Mortgage Trust. So my background is
1: I've been in lending for 30 years. Uh, Started with Merrill Lynch and worked for a small group uh, that did business lending. And how I got into real estate is in the late '90s. Um, Merrill Lynch was one of the creators of the CMBS, you know, uh, as we all know now, you know, commercial mortgage securities. And um, I started selling, uh, you know, loans into you know CMBS pools. Something that was uh, cutting edge at the time was different. People didn't understand it, but it got me of the real estate bug and I slowly transitioned my way into doing more real estate than I did commercial lending. Um, After that, I started working for a small Chicago area bank and we did, you know, ground up construction loans and also stabilized loans. Uh, From there, I worked with um, Bridger commercial funding and Bridger was a CMBS lender, uh, mainly doing small balance uh, CMBS loans. And after the recession of 2008, I moved over to New York Mortgage Trust slash Riverbank when we were two companies doing um, mes and preferred equity, you know, behind multifamily and haven't looked back since. So I've been doing that for the past 10 years.
0: That's great. Yeah. So today is all about preferred equity. i um, looking forward to diving in talking about the way that you guys approach the strategy. Uh, how you structure the deals, what you're looking for in terms of a deal and a sponsor and a business plan. So, um, you know, let's, let's start out with just for, for those that aren't familiar in your words, define preferred equity and the objective of your program.
1: Sure. So preferred equity and mezzanine are used interchangeably. Really to me, they're the same thing. The difference is you know, the legal avenue to get the dollars to the asset. So in a, in a MES loan, you are uh, creating a note and security agreement and taking uh, the partnership interest as collateral uh, and a preferred equity. You are part of the operating agreement. So you're inside the, you know, the entity that ultimately lo- owns the asset. And most of the lenders after, you know, after 2008, uh, preferred, preferred equity, no pun intended, uh, mainly because of the you know, mezzanine lenders were able to hold up a foreclosure versus you know preferred equity. You either had to make the choice of to pay off the senior lender, you know, or it, you, they looked at you more like an owner. So and you you couldn't foreclose on yourself. So it's a it's an easier avenue for a, a senior lender to foreclose on a property if they had to. So pretty much all the lenders, you know, mainly Freddie and Fannie, you know who. Uh, we come behind in you know, probably 80, 90% of our loans um, all require preferred equity. And they, they sometimes say they do mezzanine, but they truly don't.
0: Yeah. And you bring up a couple of interesting points that I wanted to cover today. Uh, one is do you differentiate your pricing based on whether you're coming into the deal in a mezzanine structure or a preferred equity structure?
1: No, the, the economics are exactly the same.
0: Okay. So, you know, one's legal structure and, you know, uh, collateral, if you will, doesn't really influence, you know, the way that you look at the deal or or how much downside protection you have.
1: No. I mean, if for whatever reason, a lender or a borrower, for that matter, said, we really need to do this as mezzanine, there could be a a, maybe a tax or tax implication, um, we'd certainly do it, and it would be, you know, no different. And you just again, the, the wording and the documentation is a bit different, but from the economics, it's exactly the same.
0: Got it. And the other thing, which is interesting, you mentioned that you know the vast majority of your lo- of your pref and mes positions are behind agency, and from my understanding, uh, agency is pretty uh, tricky to navigate in the pref world, and our uh, no, don't, they don't really allow hard pref and you have to place your money as soft pref. but I wanted to get your take on that and, and how you structure that.
1: Sure. So, um, you know, if you, if you, if you take Freddie and Fannie and let's say they're each 50% of the business out there, a majority of our investments have come behind Freddie and the reason for that is they're a bit more transparent, uh, as far as what they want as far as their pref equity agreements are concerned versus Fannie uh, a lot of it has to do with just the the ultimate way that they are funded you know Freddie essentially does a CMBS style securitization uh, Fannie is, is for lack of a better term probably a, a reinsurance company where they sell off whole notes of what they funded and they 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 back them a hundred percent so because of that uh, Freddie is you know they know you can you can ask them they know exactly you know, what they want and we know what they want with Fannie uh, sometimes I can get different answers from different dust lenders because the way they underwrite is they delegate a lot of their underwriting to the various uh, dust lenders like JLL or Walker Dunlop or CBRE and they may have all different answers as far as what we can and cannot do. So, um, that being said, it tends to get pushed over to Freddie a bit and Freddie will allow hard pay pref equity. Um, they, now they have certain limitations on that. You know, for instance, you know, you can only, uh, invest up to a one Oh five debt service coverage and that debt service coverage is combined is defined by their underwritten NOI divided by the principal and interest on the senior, regardless of the IO. And our uh, the pref equity hard pay, and the hard pay is defined by what is the economic default on the pref equity. So you know m- most of the time, you know our our hard pay will be let's call it a five. You know they'll use that five number in, in that debt service coverage requirement. And and again, is the, uh, the hard pay is simply you know if you pay the five percent hard pay, there is no economic default if you. If you can pay it and then some, um, there is no default. So it's it's pretty clearly defined.
0: Yeah, let's take a step back and I kind of jumped into the hard versus soft conversation. Uh, yeah. Can you just go quickly between the two and the advantages for both sides for each?
1: Sure. So so hard payment usually the agencies will only allow a pretty simple and straightforward economic default event, and that'd be a payment default. You know, before there was groups that were putting in uh, defaults for things like occupancy requirements or debt yield requirements, and you know, pretty much they eliminated that and saying, you know, they either pay a minimum dividend, you know, um, on your PREF or they default. So it, it's just a straight line payment default. Um, soft pay is there is no economic default. So, usually, what happens in a soft pay deal is, you know, the the property um, uh, can only be taken over by the pref equity provider uh, only in cases of you know bad acts. Um, so, if the property tanks and you know, let's say the occupancy goes to seventy percent or the debt service coverage is less than one. Um, you cannot, as a pref equity provider, you know, step in and declare a default. Um, what you can do, and most lenders do when they only have a soft pay pref, is have a you know a buy sell arrangement, or we call it a drag the market clause, where we can raise our hand and say we want out, and we give the owner um, 30 days to decide what how they want to get us out. They can sell the asset, they can cut us a check, they can find another capital provider, and then you know, 60 days, 90 days to execute on that. Usually in those scenarios, it will be selling of the asset to get us out. So it does force the sale if for whatever reason we deem the asset to be declining or somewhat, you know, not what we anticipated it to be.
0: Yeah. I noticed that clause in your, in your term sheet, the drag to market. And it says the right to drag to market after two years. So. Is that two years and there's some sort of bad act or underperformance, or is it just two years unilaterally you can force a sale?
1: No, so if there's a bad act, you can, the, the bad act will allow us to take over the asset. That's the only way we can in a soft pay prep agreement. Um, as far as an economic situation, you know, there, there's a, we, we have a two year lockout, meaning we can't enact our buy sell for the first two years. You know, otherwise, there's a risk to the borrower saying in six months that we can say we went out, they wouldn't be able to get us out, and they'd have to sell the asset, and they'd probably take a loss because they've only owned it for six months. So for that, we give them two years. Um, uh, we take a little bit of a prepayment for those two years. So in a worst-case scenario, if we funded the deal and the property tanks, and they're not able to pay us anything, um, with a prepayment, at least we have some sort of payment for those first two years until we can force the sale of the asset
0: Got it, and so how do you manage maturities right so there's also it sounds like Fannie may be more concerned than Freddie, but maturities are another thing that are you know put a pref more into a debt like vehicle than an equity like vehicle so what what is your stance on maturities and how do you structure those?
1: Yeah, so typically we have our PREF co-terminus with the seniors. So if it's a 12-year deal, we'll do a 12-year. If it's 10-year, we'll do a 10-years. The agencies typically want you to either be outside of the maturity. So usually for us, it's co-terminus plus one day. um, Or Freddie will allow you to mature it as long as it's two years or earlier before maturity. So what they don't want is to get locked up at maturity for uh, you know like a, 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 a maturity default with the pref equity lender if say a refinance or a sales delayed and you're coming up against those deadlines. Um, we always do it coterminous mainly because especially on a fixed rate, it would put a borrower in a bind if, um, let's say we matured it two years before the senior and we had maturity and they'd have to pass off and they'd have to sell they probably have to pay some sort of large prepayment penalty with the senior lender.
0: Right. Absolutely. So, and then you mentioned maturity default. So what are your remedies that you have at your disposal for a maturity default?
1: Well, a maturity default, um, would just be like any other default. We would, we would come in and step in to be the GP of the entity that owns the asset and, you know, if, if we think that there's an asset to be saved or an investment to be saved from that asset, we'll, you know, end up probably trying to sell it ourselves. Or if there's a problem with the asset, um, we'll refinance it and we'll, you know, fix it up in order to get our investment out. Um, but realistically, we don't want to, we don't want to own the asset. Uh, we want to get out as soon as possible. And if that means we have to, put in some additional monies to fix up, let's say some deferred maintenance, uh, we'll, we'll go ahead and do it. Um, but also on the flip side, if it's not worth saving, if we don't think we can recoup our investment, we would probably just let it you know, default to the senior lender and step away.
0: So something unique uh, about you guys is your willingness to go on a longer term basis on your PREF, Mm-hmm. vast majority of pref lenders I speak with, you know, they're looking at 18 to 36 month terms. They want to turn their money. They, they want to be sitting behind a bridge where there's a clear value add strategy to, to allow for the pref to be taken out either through a sale or a refinance. Um, right. So the question for you, as far as a longer term where your accrued payment is just growing your basis in the deal, essentially, how, how do you guys underwrite and get comfortable with, with that, fact where you know there might be you know 40 points of accrual building up on over a 10 year hold that needs to you know get paid to you in order to earn your return
1: right so we do it the, the reason why we go coterminous more than anything is we're you know we're a publicly traded mortgage re- and we have a balance sheet so theoretically anything we get redeemed back to us we got to go out and redeploy you know, we don't, we're not a fund investor, so we don't have to refund any investors. If they wanna get their money out of our company, they sell the stock. So um, that's one of the main reasons we do it. Um, but as far as, uh, you know, the accrual and how can we do it for 10 years, um, it really depends on the structure of the senior. So if, you know, for instance, someone comes to us with a fully amortizing senior loan and we have some sort of pay and accrue feature in our, on on our PREF equity, we can hold that pay and accrue, you know, for possibly the entire length of the time just because we're burning off debt in front of us. Uh, Conversely, if someone comes to us with a, let's say an all IO deal or a five year IO deal, which is fairly common, um, we can offer some pay and accrue, but eventually we're going to ratchet up our cash payment to minimize the accrual because you're right, you you can you can have, if you accrue for 10 years, a $5 million investment become a $10 million investment at the end of 10 years. So we want to minimize that. Now, usually what happens though is you know during that first five years, you know, there's some value add program or what have you. And the borrower will take us out, let's say with a, with a supplemental, um, or they'll, or, or they'll sell the asset before even the AM hits. So I'd say, you know, a good portion, more than half of our uh, redemptions have occurred mainly because of refinances or sales well before the maturity um, of the investment.
0: You mentioned something earlier that uh, it was one of my later questions, but I'll ask it now, which is how does being a publicly traded company affect, I mean, I think I got one answer there in terms of being comfortable in a longer mm-hmm. term, but what are, what are the other benefits and drawbacks of being a publicly traded company
1: well the uh, one of the advantages is our access to capital when things are good is is easy to get. We can literally pick up the phone, sell you know a couple million shares of stock, and within a few days we have capital to work with. Um, that worked well up until about February. <laughs> um, March hit the the markets. You know, went south, the bond market was basically frozen for two weeks. Um, so it caused a, a lot of stress in the mortgage REIT market um, because of the way we finance our, uh, you know, with our counterparties. Um, so that, that was a big disadvantage because, you know, mark-to-market accounting, you know, happens in, within hours versus if you're investing on behalf of investors with the fund, you know, it takes a while for them to say, well, it's not worth as much or I want my money back. Um, when you're working with a REIT, with a balance sheet, with a bunch of, you know, repo lines and other counterparty trades, you know, sometimes within hours, things change. And that's what was happening at the end of March. Um, so, you know, that would say the big is the biggest disadvantage. But you know, raising, raising funds when times are good and also the fact of having a balance sheet and able to go out long term. I think is a huge advantage and um, it it works works well for our platform and our investors like it because they don't feel they're under any pressure to sell, um, you know, to sell early if they don't have to or sell into a market they don't want to or incur a rather large prepayment penalty on the senior.
0: Right. So, uh, yeah, another, you you mentioned some of the the financing that happens at the corporate level. What? Uh, is your capital how is your capital structured and is it levered? you know what what kind of returns are you solving for internally uh, on this product
1: well we're a you know we're a unique mortgage REIT some people call us a hybrid um, because most mortgage REITs invest in you know, agency backed paper on the residential side or any sort of residential paper. Uh, we do too. We have half of our balance sheet that I have nothing to do with. That invests in whole note mortgages. Um, we used to have some, you know, mortgage bonds, you know, on the residential side, some agency back, some non-agency back. Um, and then our other half is investment in the multifamily space. You know, we, we did invest at one time into a, a pool of Freddie Mac uh, B pieces um, that we, we sold off, you know, back in March when everything was happening. Um, so, you know, from that standpoint, we're a very you know we're a very different mortgage rate than a lot of them. Send tend to just focus on, um, you know, on, on mainly just investments into residential backed securities. Now, there's a bunch of equity reits that are owners of properties, you know, but they really own and manage properties. We don't manage properties, you know, we invest in them, but we partner up with operators, you know, and they operate the property as they see fit. Um, so in that sense, we're you know we're very unique as far as you know the rest of the mortgage REIT sector. I don't I don't think there's a true comparable to us uh, as far as what we do, and I, I think that's going to change a bit you know also going forward just for the fact of you know what we went through and some of the things we had to do moving forward. Um, you change our philosophy sh- uh, slightly. You know, when the once in a lifetime financial event happens twice in twelve years, it causes you to, to you know think about what are we, what are we maybe doing wrong that we can prevent this from happening again.
0: Interesting. So I want to jump back to the hard versus soft discussion and and just go through those programs a bit more. So the other term I saw was ninety percent max LTV, and you know not doesn't seem to factor in. Uh, CapEx costs. I might be wrong about that, but I was wondering how you incorporate the sponsor's CapEx plan into your evaluation.
1: Well, we'll, um, you know, if someone comes in and buys a, <clears throat> a $50 million asset, and let's say they want to put $3 million of CapEx into it to improve the, improve the property, you know, we'll look at it as the cost of it being $53 million, you know, so long as that CapEx is reserved or somehow we're able to disperse it. Um, so, and in, in if, you know, the plan checks out and, you know, if they invest 5,000 a door and they can get a hundred, $150 pop on rents and it makes sense, you know, yeah, theoretically we can get up to 90% of that 53 million in this example. Um, typically though, it's hard to hit that 90%. It's maybe a little bit easier today is just because you normally get constrained by debt service coverage ratios. and what specifically Freddie Mac imposes on you. Uh, On the soft pay, they don't impose it on you because they don't care because there's no economic default. Um, But uh, usually usually we get some sort of stress from the cash flow so we're not able to do the full 90%. But uh, it's been creeping up a bit lately just because now borrowers are able to get 10 year fixed rate financing at around 3%. You know, in pre, pandemic it was you know hovering around four four and a quarter so that's a that's a pretty big drop um you can fit a lot more debt into the same asset producing the same amount of cash flow
0: yeah absolutely so we've mentioned some few situations where you know economic default maturity default can you talk about a situation where you guys have had to step in and take over management
1: um we really haven't had too many. We haven't had an economic default yet. Um, we've had a few defaults by bad acts where the borrowers were you know, doing things they weren't supposed to and we give them notice and they weren't able to cure those defaults. So we had to step in um, and control the asset. And you know, really the minute we stepped in, we assessed our investment, assessed the property, which we had a pretty good handle on, and really just went in and sold the, sold the assets to recoup our investment. So it was you know, fairly quick, you know, as far as what we wanted to do, um, you know, what we wanted to do, how we wanted to do it, and, you know, and anything we collected above our investment still went back to the sponsorship so um even in an adversarial type of relationship
0: that's actually very interesting and so what are the economic ramifications of stepping in do you dilute the common equity is there some sort of default rate that you're now charging
1: yeah there is a default rate it's it's uh you know seven percent or 700 basis points above uh what our initial rate was and then all the fees that we incur to take control of the asset and ultimately sell it. So, um, is it meant to be punitive? Yeah, (laughs) it is. You know, we, we don't, we don't want, you know, we don't want borrowers to commit bad acts. Um, you know, and the bad acts are very similar, you know, to what the same bad acts clause the agencies or any other senior lender have, whether it be fraud or misappropriation of funds or, committing a felony or, you know, there's, you know, there's, there's many of them. Um, Common sense is, as I say. So um, you you know, really it's, yeah, it's, it's a lot of our, you know, default, you know, interest rate. It's, you know, because the minute we take over as GP, we're running the asset and we're not set up to run assets. You know, we're set up to manage investments, not run multifamily properties. So, Uh, our theory is if we're going to step in and control it, we want to get paid like a, you know, like an owner. Um, then it's again, also to be punitive and, but eventually what we do is we just want to exit. We want to get it off our books, get recoup our investment, you know, plus our return and get out.
0: Right. So I noticed on the, the bridge preferred product, there's a pretty large exit fee of 2%. Incorporate on the total debt stack. Right. And I, and that sounds pretty expensive. Um, but with the caveat that it's waived if, if the refi is through uh, you guys. So is that a pretty good incentive? Do you end up getting a lot of refinances through, through New York Mortgage Trust? Yeah. The, the whole intent of that bridge
1: program is to get an unstabilized asset, whether it be because of lease up or because of some sort of event um, to a point where it's stabilized. Um, and the, the secondary intent of it is you know, to capture, you know, capture that refinance market. So yeah, understanding that it, you know, who we've partnered up with to do the senior financing, it's the it's to capture that permanent financing at the end, really. And if they choose not to use it, yes, that's what compensates us for not getting that end result. So, you know, uh, understanding that it's, it's probably a good product for a lot of banks, you know, that are sitting on a bunch of construction deals that, you know, maybe have taken longer to lease up because of the pandemic. And they either need a pay down or they want it off their books. You know, this is a, this is a good product for that. You know, typically we haven't been a short term bridge equity provider we we always had some sort of large i would say uh, return multiple you know to be in the deal at least 3 years you know this deal they only have to be in for 6 months and there's no so long as they refinance with us there's no other exit fees associated with it
0: that makes sense and do you have do you act like a broker in that refi scenario or do you have a specific lender go to on the agency side for the stabilized takeout?
1: Yeah, we have we have a, a partnership lender uh, that we work with that we can't name um, that works with us. And, you know, this is a, a venture between the, you know, the two of us. So they, you know, they, they want that business and we felt in order to do the bridge equity you know, it's not, it's something very counter to what we've been doing in the past. Um, but we thought this was a good opportunity to get something in there quick. And, you know, once it's stabilized, to flip it over into uh, a, you know an agency or long-term uh, financing solution uh, upon stabilization.
0: Got it, makes sense. So can you explain the operator partner program uh, and what that is
1: Yeah it, it it's just you know a list of, of operators that we have that work with us either on the pref side or that maybe want to work with us that you know getting back to you know issues of defaults you know we're we're set up as an investment firm we're not uh, a fully you know integrated uh, you know shop where we have an asset we have a property management firm, we have an ownership firm, and we, we really want to act like a mortgage rate. So because of that, when we take over these properties in a default situation, you we're not running up. Um, so typically who would we use to bring in to manage the asset until we decide what to do with it or until we dispose of it? It's probably someone we already work with um, that we trust that has done a good job. So we, we bring them as a, manager and and possibly a buyer to buy the asset. Um, We've done that on a couple occasions where we've had in in the scenarios that I told you about, um, we had someone come in that we knew um, that was familiar with the market to manage the asset while we decided what to do. They did a great job. Um, They ended up um, uh, being a partner and buying buying that asset from us at the end of the day.
0: Very interesting. I like that. So Lastly, I wanted to dive into the CMBS side of the business. You have a background in CMBS, and you also mentioned some of the Freddie Mac B pieces that you were involved with. Uh, So so just tell us more about uh, that that side of the business.
1: Well, um, the genesis of our company that started back in 2010 was uh, buying the very first Freddie Mac B piece, uh, 10-year fixed-rate note variety. Uh, it was a great investment because at the time there was no liquidity in the market. We're just coming out of a big recession and you know I think the the modeled return on it was in the 20s. You know, just to give you an idea the modeled return on these things now are probably in the eights. Uh, so it was it it was, it was a great investment our our owner ownership at the time had a prior relationship with Freddie Mac um, so it, it turned into a business for us where New York Mortgage Trust was actually providing the capital for us to buy these B pieces, um, and you know, Freddie Matt. I'm sorry, New York Mortgage Trust took us over about four years ago. We continued to do that business, you know, for you know almost ten years, and it became a big part of our program. Um, as I mentioned before, in March we sold our our portfolio, our entire portfolio, for a variety of reasons. It's not like we were disappointed in them; they were great investments. Um, but if you understand the B pieces, they're essentially zero coupon bonds. And inherently they're a little bit difficult for a mortgage REIT to keep on its books because we have to pay a dividend, they're not paying any income. So you know, we really rely on liquid, liquid capital debt markets. And in March and April and May, there, there wasn't liquid you know, debt markets involved. So it, it, we had to make a choice to, to sell those assets. Um, but they were, you know, essentially very similar to, you know, if you want to call it in the same scope of, you know, direct preferred equity and MES investments, um, just a bit different dynamic. You're not going up the capital stack as high on every deal, but you incur the first losses in the entire portfolio, um, until your investment is exhausted. So a little bit different type of risk, but. You know they have been they were, they were great investments. Freddie Mac does a great job. We have a good relationship with them, and then maybe at some point we may uh, get back into that into the future. but as of right now I, I I don't think we are at the moment
0: right. It seems like a bit of a maturity or liquidity mismatch there for the for the B piece and the and the publicly traded entity
1: yeah they're they're better situated for funds, especially for funds that. I'm not looking, looking to pay out uh, a quarterly or somewhat regular cash payment to their investors. If you can hold them to maturity and don't have to worry about uh, cash distributions, like I said, they're a great investment. Um, our, our ability to hold them was based upon a lot of these bank repo lines that uh, you know, were, were in flux you know, back in March. So that pretty much kind of made the decision for us.
0: Well, Joe, I greatly appreciate your time and uh, it was wonderful hearing your insights. Go ahead and let uh, listeners know the best way to reach out to you and, and to work with New York Mortgage Trust.
1: Sure. It's, uh, my direct number is 224 848 4028 or just a simple email at uh, jkunzon at com, And certainly happy to talk with anyone. Interested in pref equity or wanting to know um, a bit more about our programs?
0: Awesome, thanks for coming on the show.
1: All right, thanks, Rob.